is the unmistakable opening of The Message, the seminal hip-hop song from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Now, you might wonder, why are we playing that song on our podcast about the global economy? I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, executive editor for Global Economics in New York. You know, Scott, the beauty of this is... Economics is too often mistaken for the study of statistics. That's boring. Economies are living, breathing things composed of people making decisions each day. Well, one of the things that affects people in their day-to-day lives is inflation. And it affected people a lot more in the 70s and 80s than it does today. But Anyway, the Federal Reserve has just raised interest rates by a quarter point, and one of the major reasons they cited is inflation is picking up and getting close to the central bank's target. But there's actually a line in the message that brings us full circle. Now, that was in 1982, just as the country was recovering from inflation being truly in the double digits, or over 10%. We were fortunate to speak with Ed Fletcher, the man who wrote those lyrics. He's also known as Duke Booty. We talked with him about what was going through his mind at the time and happening in the world around him, and we got even more than we bargained for. You'll hear that interview in just a moment. It's hard to top that, Scott, but we thought we'd check in with Alice Rivlin. Alice is a former vice chair of the Fed, now at Brookings Institution, and find out what historical perspective she has on those days and what she sees as today's principal economic challenge. All right. Well, without further ado, here is our interview with Ed Duke Booty Fletcher. He joins us on the phone from the beautiful southern city of Savannah, Georgia, where he is a lecturer of critical thinking at Savannah State University. Let's go back to, to that era. This was 1982 when that song came out. Uh, a different time, different economy, different political situation in our country. What inspired you to write the lyrics for that song? Actually, I don't think the times are all that different. And I tell people that I think coming up, the teens are going to make the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s look like the 50s. So I think this kind of situation, you know, economic deprivation, lack of opportunity, not seeing certain images projected in a positive way and living with it. I don't think that for a certain class of people, things have changed all that much. Where were you living at the time and and how old were you? I was living in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I'm Elizabeth boy. And the things that you wrote about in the song, where was that coming from? Well, I never say, but a lot of my friends say that I could have looked right out my living room window to the park across the street from my house and seen any of those visions. So I guess it came from what I was living. I'm struck, Ed, that you think the economic times are not all that different. I mean, one of the lines in the song that appeals to us as an economics podcast is the line about double-digit inflation. When you look at today's inflation numbers, that Seems like it's a long way away. Yeah, truly. And I, and I thought about the um, interest rate you know, going up and what the house mortgage rate is. But to a certain class of people, that really doesn't hit their consciousness. I mean, they're still faced with the same problems. I mean, during the 
you know, the housing, uh, mortgage, where everyone could get a mortgage. The people I was talking to still couldn't get a mortgage. So if the song were written today, maybe double-digit inflation, something else would go in in place of that. Yeah, I'd find something that rhymed with uh, poverty, I guess. I don't know. Well, when you when you actually wrote the song, I mean, the, the, there are pictures that you created of so many different things happening. You're talking about the bill collectors, talking about can't take the train to the job, there's a strike at the station, you know, things that are happening in the streets. Why, of all these things, did you choose to mention double-digit inflation in the middle of all that? You know, as a songwriter, uh, you're looking for things a, that rhyme. It's funny, I just did an interview with a guy from Vanity Fair, and he asked me about the line sacroiliac. And I said, well, if you were a songwriter and you were looking for something that rhymes with the previous line, you may have, you know, I didn't even think that was one of my best rhymes, but, you know, you never know what's going to happen. But double-digit inflation, I mean, everybody can deal with the fact their money ain't what it used to be. Well, how did that affect you or people you knew at the time? Was it something that you just heard about on the news all the time, or was it really burrowing into people's lives? Well, you know, you got to understand that uh, even at that time, I had a college degree, I had a master's degree, I had taught, and for me, and I just told someone today, the fact that President Trump is the president and the fact that there's all these arguments about health care, I'm, 60, I'm 65, my health care has been straight for 30 years, my wife worked for the government for 30 years, my kids have good health care, my grandkids have good health care. It's not so much the fact what I'm facing, but you think about a certain population and you know the sort of desolation they face, and you're trying to, to get to a, a certain audience. I can't write, you know, songs about my situation as much as I can about... In fact, I did just write one about my situation, but it really doesn't have those economic references. It has more of an age reference, because I'm going to be 66 soon. And just to get back to that word you mentioned, desolation. Now, you also mentioned President Trump. You know, his victory is often portrayed as a primal scream from at least some sections of the working class. Why do you think, then, so many people feeling desolation effectively voted to lose their health care? Well, you have to understand that in America, if race isn't the context, it certainly is going to be the subtext. And what people fail to talk about when they talk about President Trump, and, you know, I, if you look at my website, I call myself a colored conservative. And what people fail to look at is, is the subtext of race and the social context of how people vote. The only thing that can get a person to vote against their own economic interest is a certain social subtext or context. And I think that beyond the racial context, beyond the racial subtext, there were also other things going on with overreach by other communities. And when people feel that overreach is happening, they feel like, and, and, and also anyone who knows history knows that the first time black people got any power in this country was during Reconstruction, and Reconstruction brought us Jim Crow. There's always a natural, a natural swing to the other side before you come back to the homeostasis that we're used to. I mean, the idea that people are persuaded to vote against their economic self-interest by cultural symbols, I think that's what you're saying. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
most people don't understand is anyone who would ever vote against their own economic interests. But that's very clear throughout history. People have done that for other ideas. And I think that those social contacts become those ideas in this case. So people might not be facing double-digit inflation today, but they certainly face a host of not just economic, but uh, you know, racial issues that could be holding them back for... Well, that's, that's actually, if you want to know the truth, that's actually never changed. If you look during the Clinton era when home buying in America was at its highest, there was a certain element of people who still couldn't get a mortgage, who still didn't have enough money for a down payment, and who never got a home. So now, those same people, you know, even though the mortgage rate was low and you could get a mortgage, they didn't have the money for a mortgage. So, you know, that same desolation is still there. You know, Ed, I grew up in suburban Australia, as you can probably gather, and I remember... Well, I figured that he was either at or somewhere in England. I lived in England, so I was like trying to figure, is it up, Upland, or where is that England yeah. actually It's from? the southeast of England, 10,000 miles to the southeast. But, <laughs> there you go, but, there you go. But, you know, there I was, uh, you know, in my teens, and... Believe it or not, that was a hit in Australia. Actually, you probably do believe it because I'm sure you've seen the numbers. Yeah, I get a BMI, I get a BMI uh, uh, record of where the record's making money, so I know where it made money. Okay. But the scene described uh, in the lyrics and the video as well was something radical to me you know, in a teenage upbringing in suburban Australia. Where was that video shot? Was that shot uh, in the Elizabeth? The video was shot in Manhattan. Okay. It was shot in Manhattan. But and little known fact, you were not actually in the video and someone else was lip syncing for you, right? wasn't in the video, right? was supposed to produce it, wound up not producing it because the budget I wanted for it wasn't going to be allotted. So I said, well, you know, y'all take and do what you want. Now, would any of the people uh, who featured in that video, and there were a lot of street scenes, recognize both the city economy in that area, the regional economy and the national economy? I mean... Back then, the United States and other Western countries was much more of a manufacturer. The digital economy didn't exist yet, and urban gentrification, I guess, had not yet happened. What's that neighborhood look like now? Probably was worse. Unless it, some of the scenes took place in downtown Manhattan, around 42nd Street. Okay. That's like Disneyland now. That's nothing like it was if you're from Jersey and you're my age, what it grew up like. But... The kind of gentrification that, that Harlem faced and Brooklyn is facing is facing Savannah right now. So urban scenes continually change and rechange themselves depending on the need for housing. Who wants to live close to the urban center? Well, Ed, it's rare for us at Bloomberg to get such uh, trenchant economic insights from people who you know, we don't normally talk to on a regular basis outside of the economic <laughs> and financial world. So this has been a real treat and a pleasure and an honor. Well, you know, anytime, man, I like to think of myself as somewhat of a thinker. And I do follow many of the Bloomberg outlets because I follow business because business is an indicator of the future. Ed, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. All right, man. I appreciate the time. Well, Dan, that was uh, a little different from what we usually do here on Benchmark, wasn't it? Look, who said economics is about statistics? It's about living, breathing, people, companies, organizations making decisions each day. And that really was a great economic history lesson.
Yeah, it sure was. Now we're about to go to a more traditional guest that we have on Benchmark. It's Alice Rivlin, former vice chair of the Fed, and we're going to see what she has to say about all this. Alice, thanks so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. So in light of the Fed's latest decision where they cited rising inflation as one of the reasons for this latest interest rate hike, we're taking a longer view of inflation today. You were the founding director of the Congressional Budget Office in the 1970s and early 80s when inflation was running at much higher rates than it is today. How did inflation affect Americans' lives back then? What kinds of things do you remember from that time? Well, back then, especially in the 70s, uh, inflation was uh, serious and uh, at the end of the 70s actually got into double digits, which seemed very important uh, at, at the time. What it meant for individuals was that their prices of everything uh, were were going up, consumer products and uh, uh, all kinds of things, cars and houses and uh, consumer durables particularly and uh, other and food and other things that people had to buy and gasoline because one of the main uh, apparent precipitating factors of such high inflation uh, was the oil embargo, two oil embargoes actually, uh, and uh, very rapidly rising prices of uh, oil and gasoline. Was it the kind of situation where you would go to the grocery store from one month to the next or the gas station from one month to the next and you'd be like, oh my goodness, the prices have gone up so much again. Yes. It wasn't actually a runaway inflation uh, such as uh, many developing countries had experienced and Germany after World War I, uh, where you had to take wheelbarrows full of marks uh, to buy anything. It wasn't like that, but it was really serious uh, inflation, prices rising uh, from uh, one month to the next uh, in uh, almost everything. And, you know, Alice, today it seems like the situation's been turned on its head. You could almost hear the cheers from central bankers, not just in the United States, but around the world in the last few months. There's some inflation, yippee, 2%. It feels like the problem of the last few years has been deflation or disinflation in the world's major economies. Probably something you never thought you'd confront. Uh, absolutely. The uh Japanese were the first to confront real deflation, uh, prices going down. Uh, and prices going down is a bad thing because people then expect them to go down further. Uh, so they don't buy things. They postpone purchases in hopes of better prices. Uh, and then the situation gets worse. Uh, one can say inflation uh, on the upside uh, also has self-perpetuating uh, capacity. Uh, but on the downside, it's really dangerous. And the Japanese uh, deflation was uh, very worrisome, and they haven't really gotten back to normal levels of inflation uh, even yet. And it worried all the advanced uh, countries. The United States never actually had uh, negative uh, inflation. 
But uh, that's what central bankers were worried about a few years ago. You actually you know, were at the Fed at a time when the memories of the 1970s and early 80s still seemed to be very fresh. It seemed to persist for a long time. And many of the more hawkish policymakers who lived through that era have warned in recent years that any excessive stimulus from the Fed would cause inflation to skyrocket. And yet that hasn't happened. Why is that? That's right. Uh, I was at the Fed uh, in the second part of the 90s, uh, 96 to 99. Then we had very uh, good growth uh, in the economy. We had uh, uh, tight labor markets. We got the unemployment rate down below 4% uh, briefly at one time. And yet there was no inflation. And the economists who were looking at their models, and models tell you what used to happen in the past, uh, were all saying, uh, we're going to get inflation, we're going to get uh, inflation, and we have to uh, guard against that. But it wasn't happening. And at the Fed, we were trying to figure out why it wasn't happening. Alan Greenspan had a theory that uh, proved to be right, actually, that uh, productivity growth had accelerated uh, as people learned how to use the Internet and uh, that the productivity growth uh, was giving businesses a way to accommodate rising wages without raising their prices. Uh, that uh, turned out to be at least part of the explanation. But we weren't seeing inflation. And at the time, uh, I began saying uh, to people at the Fed and other places, uh, I don't think we're going to see inflation for quite a while because we've gotten away from the inflation-prone situation in the economy that we had in the 70s and 80s. In the 70s and 80s, we had very strong unions, uh, often with multi-year contracts that tied wages to the uh, consumer price index. Uh, and that meant that uh, you had a self-perpetuating situation there. Uh, if uh, prices went up, wages would go up, and that would put uh, further pressure on. Also, the economy was not nearly as flexible as it is now. Uh, back in those days, if you were short of something, especially skilled labor, uh, you had to raise wages and therefore costs uh, to get more labor. Now you don't. Uh, you go on the internet and find uh, skilled people somewhere else in another part of our country or another part of uh, the world. So uh, our economy is just much more flexible and uh, responds uh, more uh, quickly to shortages than it did then. There are a lot of other reasons, but I think we don't have the same situation that we had in the 70s and 80s. The other big thing is nobody, no adults uh, have uh, experienced uh, inflation for a very long time. And the expectation of inflation is one of the things that fuels this self-perpetuating cycle. Back then, if prices went up, people said, oh, dear, they're going up more. Uh, we're going to have to buy quickly. But uh, now, nobody expects inflation. We haven't had any for a long time. And as you said, the Fed's been worrying about it's being too low. Uh, so uh, we just don't have those inflationary expectations. 
You know, Alice, we just heard from Duke Booty, who wrote the message. He was saying, well, just because there's no longer double-digit inflation does not mean we're out of the economic woods. It does not mean there aren't serious economic challenges facing Americans and the world today. What's number one of your worry list? I have a long worry list, and inflation is very far down it. Uh, One is the inequality of uh, uh, growth uh, in the United States, where the uh, fruits of growth have gone more and more heavily to uh, the top uh, 1 or 2% of the uh, income distribution and wages of average people have lagged far behind. That's very serious. I think climate change is a very serious threat uh, over time to all of our economies, and we're not addressing it. I think financial instability is another threat. We just saw in uh, 2008 that uh, we can have a uh, crisis in our financial uh, system, and that precipitates a terrible uh, recession that we're only now uh, recovering uh, fully from. Uh, so that's that's my uh, uh, top three. I could give you some more before I got to inflation. Well, let, let's go back to inflation again. The Fed is actually mandated by Congress to focus on stable prices and maximum employment, the so-called dual mandate. Uh, most other central banks in the developed world, Bank of England, European Central Bank, so on and so forth, also have uh, mandates to focus on uh, price stability. And they, they, many of them have interpreted it to mean uh, uh, trying to achieve inflation of 2%. Should lawmakers in these countries think about changing these kinds of mandates to focus on some of the other kinds of things you were talking about more prominently? And is 2% inflation the right target to be focused on if they have to decide uh, on, a, on a stable price target? I think 2% is a pretty good goal. Uh, back when I was at the Fed, actually, the inflation hawks used to aim for zero. But I think we have learned that uh, uh, zero puts you in a dangerous place. Uh, you might get deflation because you can't be very exact about it. Uh, 2% uh, is uh, an okay number. Uh, I wouldn't be terribly worried if inflation crept up to 25 or 3 uh, because I think inflation is what central banks know how to deal with very easily. Uh, if inflation does seem to be getting too high, then they can raise interest rates, and that that works. We know that. Uh, the things that are much harder to deal with are slow growth uh, and uh, other things that uh, uh, the Federal Reserve doesn't have very good instruments uh, to to deal with, if you uh, lower the uh, rate, the uh, short-term interest rate, uh, down uh, near zero, you can't get it below zero. Uh, And if your economy is still in recession, uh, then you have to figure out what else to do. Now, in the Great Recession, uh, everybody figured it out, and uh, the central banks had uh, good success with increasing monetary ease by uh, simply buying securities. 
but uh, keeping downward pressure on uh, the range of interest rates. But it's not uh, guaranteed to be successful very quickly. Fiscal policy is much more effective uh, in uh, raising uh, growth and uh, employment. Um, so I don't mind a 2% uh, target on inflation. I just think it shouldn't be taken too seriously if we rise above it a little bit. All right. Well, Alice, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a very uh, enlightening conversation. Good. Enjoyed it. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us in so many places, the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, or Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, please rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm at at Scott Landman. And Dan, you are at at Moss underscore Eco. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. And the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.